zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Body Heat, released August 28th, 1981. It was written and directed by Lawrence Kasdan and released by Warner Brothers. After the successes of Raiders and Empire, Fox signed Lawrence Kasdan to a deal to write and direct an original film. Fox president Alan Ladd Jr. was a supporter of the script, but the studio was not keen on the proposed cast of Unknowns, so Ladd took the project with him when he left Fox to found the Ladd Company, which earlier this season has also produced Outland and previously Bette Midler's concert film Divine Madness, which we did not cover because it was a concert film. The Ladd Company required an experienced director to agree to step in in the event first-time director Kasdan did not work out. George Lucas stepped in to the backup slot to return the favor of Kasdan stepping in to complete the script for Empire Strikes Back after Lee Brackett passed away during the film's development. In secret, Lucas also offered to cover any budgetary overages on set from his own exec producing fee, something Kasdan said he only learned recently. <laughs> So I guess they didn't use that? No, they didn't have to. Ladd's only request was that William Hurt shave the mustache because he thought it crossed a line and made Racine look like a softcore porn actor, but Kasdan would not budge on yeah. the mustache. I think they are both right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it looks, it looks softcore and I like it that way. Originally set to shoot in New Jersey in the summer, the production was delayed by the 1980 actor strike and had to move to Florida in winter. It was so cold on set that the actors had to keep ice in their mouths to keep their breath from fogging over. The same tactic was used on the set of recent Patreon pick Jaws 2, also shot in Florida. Wait a minute. Yes. <laughs> it was so cold in the movie that's all about it being constantly hot. Yes. Yeah. Yep. That sounds so much worse to film if you're constantly being sprayed down to the And there's fans pointed at you all the time. It's already freezing. That sounds Mm -hmm. so uncomfortable. They spray you down with water and point a fan at you. Yeah, make you look sweaty. I don't know. And you can't shiver. Honestly, I am even more impressed with their acting ability (laughs) now, knowing that that's the circumstances in which they filmed this. Well, after Altered States and Eyewitness, I feel like William Hurt was like, get me the sweatiest script you can find. (laughs) Cool hand Luke. Perfect. (laughs) Wait, they already made this. New York casting agents had initially steered Kathleen Turner away from Kasdan, but when she came in weeks later to audition for All the Marbles in L.A., agent Wally Nasita had a good feeling and brought her to Kasdan, who was impressed. Her only credits so far were appearances on the soap opera The Doctors, but after multiple auditions, even the Ladd Company execs were convinced she was the right choice. She's wonderful in the film, though, yeah. and her voice is inescapably reminiscent of Lauren Bacall's. Add to that that she's incredibly gorgeous and willing to do all the nudity this role requires. I don't know how you could possibly say no to this person. Hurt and Turner have both insisted they were comfortable on set, and to make the crew comfortable, they would both strip completely nude and introduce themselves one at a time to the entire crew before filming. That makes you more comfortable? I feel like that's more awkward. Yeah. (laughs) The nude scenes were actually much more graphic in the first cut, but the scenes were tightened up a bit after the premiere to lock in the best possible distribution deal. 
Director Kasdan has admitted recently to me privately that the major casting choices of the film were based entirely on the actor's last names. So the character with all the twists and turns is played by Turner. The character who ended up Hurt is played by Hurt. And the character who does all the dancing is Ted Danson. He does do a he, lot of dancing. He dances so much in this. <laughs> on a budget of $9 million, it brought in $24 million. So definitely paid for itself. This was a successful film. The title sequence plays mostly in darkness with tantalizing little snippets of a curtain blowing in a breeze, light cutting through spindles of cigarette smoke, and what looks like a naked woman lying on her side across the bottom of frame. When it ends, we see a sweaty shirtless Ned Racine, played by William Hurt, staring out the front window of a house at smoke billowing into the sky across the street. And the faint sirens of fire trucks on approach blend into the slow jazzy score. Behind him, a naked redhead pulls on a bra and complains about the heat. She asks him what's on fire. Seawater in. My family used to eat dinner there 25 years ago. Now somebody's torched it to clear the lot. It's a shame. Probably one of my clients. <laughs> Later we'll meet the specific client he's probably thinking of here. The woman announces her impending departure and he barely reacts until she pokes fun at him a bit and he joins her on the bed. I spent most of the film thinking this opening scene uh we were going to come back to it oh. like as, as if this is the future and we're kind of come back to the fact ah. that this place is on fire and then it never came back no it like, it's, oh. it's just setting him okay. up as like a sleazy lawyer type yeah we cut to a courtroom where racine and another attorney peter lowenstein played by ted danson speak privately with judge robert costanza everyone is basted in sweat as aluminum fans twirl and the judge is getting impatient with the case before him some kind of literal toilet heist the judge recommends that Racine get his client to accept Lowenstein's generous plea deal in exchange for avoiding jail time. But don't test my patience for even five more minutes. If he hesitates, I'll nail him. I'll talk to him. Racine communicates his client's options or lack thereof to the man, and we cut away to Stella's coffee shop, where the competing attorneys sit side by side at the bar. They wonder aloud why Costanza hates Racine so much, and he concludes that Costanza must have been in on the toilet heist, and he's mad that it didn't work out. Lowenstein is late back to the courthouse and does a little dance on his way out of the coffee shop. Stella, working the counter, tries to spill some local gossip on Racine, but he guesses all the pertinent details. He tells her these rumors are beneath her, and she realizes he's right and blames the heat. On his way home from a bar that night, Racine passes a concert on Miranda Beach. He notices a woman in white stand and leave the audience and moves to follow her. Do you remember the last time we had a concert on the beach? Concert on the beach... It didn't end well for many of the people attending the concert. Fear no evil. Yeah. <laughs> was that a concert or was that a uh, it was like passion high, play? It was like the like the high school performance or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> people are getting struck by lightning and yeah. exploding. <laughs> Racine strikes up a conversation, looking out at the ocean. I'm a married woman. Meaning what? Meaning I'm not looking for company. And you should have said I'm a happily married woman. That's my business. He keeps digging into her business, and she seems amused by his efforts. You're not too smart, are you? <laughs> I like that in a man. <laughs> I like that line a lot, too. That's what you like in me, <laughs> that I'm an idiot. We should reevaluate that. <laughs> no, it's perfect. He's persistent about buying her a drink, and she talks him down to a snow cone instead. He correctly guesses from her outfit and demeanor that she has a house in the Pinehaven neighborhood. She chuckles at one of his jokes and spills cherry snow cone syrup down the front of her dress. He leaves her to get a paper towel. Dip it in some cold water. Right away. I'll even wipe it off for you. You don't want to lick it? 
When he returns from the men's room with paper towels, Maddie, as we'll come to know her, is gone, and her coat is folded over a railing. The next day, he drives a convertible through Pinehaven and returns to the same beach concert venue looking for Maddie, with no luck. He takes home a nurse instead, and we cut right to the woman dressing up for work the next morning while he lies naked in bed. The next night, he pops into a cocktail bar and finds Maddie near the door. He takes a seat beside her and pretends it's a coincidence. She suddenly tells him about her porch chimes and how they used to mean a cool breeze, but not anymore. They talk about the heat again and make formal introductions. As they touch hands, Racine notices that Maddie Walker is burning up. Wow. You all right? Yes, I'm fine. My temperature runs a couple of degrees high, around 100. I don't mind. It's the engine or something. Maybe you need a tune-up. Don't tell me. You have just the right tool. I don't talk like that. He confesses he came here looking for her, just as he notices angry glares from all the other bar patrons. She explains they've all tried hitting on her already, and he's gotten to sit here the longest. She's tired of the attention, and he suggests she not come out dressed this way. This is a blouse and skirt. I don't know what you're talking about. You shouldn't wear that body. When she announces her intention to leave, he asks to follow for a chance to see the chimes, and that's it, he promises. She suggests they should leave at separate times in case she ever comes back with her husband, and he claims not to see the point, so she slaps him and moves to a booth seat. He leaves angrily, and we cut right to him following her home. It was all part of the ruse. They park outside, and he follows her right through the front door, and she leads him wordlessly upstairs. They step out onto a balcony to see the chimes, and he asks what they keep in the boathouse that he can see below. Um, a boat. <laughs> he tries to take her face in his hand, and she urges him out. He walks out to his car and then leans on the door for a moment, staring frustratedly up at the chimes on the balcony. He rushes back to the locked door and works his way around the house looking for a way in. She watches him with palpable anticipation. Eventually, he snatches up a small table or maybe a chair from the porch and hurls it through a glass door before rushing in to take Maddie in his arms. They kiss passionately. We get another insert of her wedding ring, but they don't stop. She pries open his shirt to kiss his chest while he works her skirt up around her waist and dips his hand into her panties. He tears them down and tosses them on the carpet and they collapse together on the floor. Hours later, they're in bed together and Maddie's hand sneaks down to Racine's crotch under the blanket. The next day, Racine wanders into his office to meet a new client, an older woman who he promises to earn a big settlement for. We cut to later afternoon in Maddie Walker's guest house on the shore, Inside, Racine stands to fill a window frame nude and glistening with sweat. Maddie rises behind him, also nude. She starts massaging him from behind, and he asks for a minute to recharge. She drags him by the penis back to the bed, and they are sprawled out over each other again, but we cut to Racine, half-dressed in a bathroom, fishing through the walker's medicine cabinet. He notices Maddie laundering the sheets they slept in, and insists that no one should know what they've done, including her own staff, because knowledge is power. Back at Stella's coffee house, Lowenstein sits down with Racine. Whenever they're here, Racine has a beer and Lowenstein has iced tea. Lowenstein tries to pry into Racine's latest sexual exploits, but he refuses to kiss and tell. A cop friend, Detective Oscar Grace, joins them at the table and talks about how busy the heat wave has kept him. The heat drives people to murder. We cut back to the Walker residence and a breeze jingles the chimes. Upstairs, we find Racine and Maddie in bed again, and then immediately we cut to them taking a post-coital ice bath together. She's depressed because her husband returns tomorrow, so we get a quick montage of Racine waiting out the weekend in the heat alone. The next night, he wanders back to the house to find Maddie standing in the yard under a gazebo. Hey lady, you wanna fuck? 
The woman, wearing a similar dress to what we've seen from Maddie, turns around and considers the offer out loud as Racine backs away, stuttering and embarrassed. I'm sorry. You are? You mean the offer's no good? <laughs> I feel like a jerk. Turns out this is Marianne, a friend of Maddie's, and Maddie walks up to hand Marianne some paperwork. Maddie invites her to stay for dinner, but she gives the couple their privacy. Maddie tells Racine not to worry about the slip-up. Marianne is like a sister. We cut to the foggy balcony later as Maddie and Racine redress after more sex. Maddie is talking about her husband Ed's holdings and will. She mentions that her husband or people he works with may own Miranda Beach and a building on the sand called The Breakers. But Racine thought someone named Maury Fisher owned all that. This name doesn't come back though, this Maury Fisher character. Right. I thought that was going to be more important. She says she's too nervous to continue talking about this stuff because it's hard not to fantasize about her husband's death. That's where we're at, isn't it? What do you mean? That's what we're both thinking, how good it would be for us if he was gone. It'd be real sweet for us. No, Ned, please don't. Don't talk about it. Talk is dangerous. Sometimes it makes things happen. It makes them real. Oh, that's scary. Ned says there's nothing to worry about because Edmund is a healthy man and he won't just die out of the blue to make things easy for them. Now we get this weird scene that I couldn't quite place. I don't understand what's happening here. But we cut to a prison where Racine walks through the hall with his detective friend and they shake hands before they part ways. I don't know what we're establishing here. But he visited the prison. He talked to his detective friend there. We cut to a beach at night where Racine and Maddie talk more about Edmund's will. Apparently she signed an ironclad prenup, so divorce is useless. She asks if he would still love her if she weren't rich, and he says it doesn't matter. She leads him away to a surprise, a dressy hat a reference to a comment he made at the bar on their second night together after she complained about the horrors of life in general. I know that sometimes the shit comes down so heavy I feel like I should wear a hat. Sometime later, Maddie walks off the porch of her home to greet her arriving husband, Edmund Walker, played by Richard Crenna, and he's surprising her on this trip with her young niece, Heather. When Ed returns to work the next Monday, he leaves Heather behind and mentions that his sister, Roz, will pick her up Thursday. It feels like he's caught wind of her dalliances and has left a child as a sort of chaperone. Later, we see Maddie at a payphone calling Racine to tell him to lay low for a while. One weeknight, he surprises her all sweaty and undressed on the porch, and she warns him away, reminding him Heather is asleep upstairs and this is too dangerous. Maddie seems to decide on a blowjob to get him to leave as quickly as possible, but before she can even start, Heather catches them and we cut right to Roz picking her up Thursday. Maddie looks very worried as Roz and Heather pull away because her affair is entirely resting in this girl's hands now. The next weekend, Racine enters a fancyish restaurant to enjoy a meal by himself when he bumps into the walkers, Maddie and Edmund, together. Maddie successfully sells the story that Mr. Racine, whose first name she claims not to know, is a lawyer who represented a man interested in buying their property. Edmund invites Racine to join them for dinner, which actually seems crazy to me, but I think it becomes clear shortly. The men talk about their law school backgrounds, but Ed says he couldn't make money fast enough in the courtroom, so he switched to a more business-minded career. Now, finance, basically. Venture capital, real estate, investments. We're into a few things. After Ed makes some offhanded remark about how Maddie doesn't understand this stuff. And don't try and explain that to her. I'm too dumb. A woman, you know. <laughs> she steps away to use the restroom, and Ed makes it clear that he knows exactly what's going on. She's a lovely lady. <laughs> Yeah, she is. And I'm crazy about her. If I thought she was seeing another guy, I don't know. Oh, I could understand how it could happen. Her being the way she is, I could understand it, but... I think I'd kill the guy with my bare hands. That's understanding. 
<laughs> Presumably his niece Heather described a man with Racine's distinctive mustache, and Ed has been reading the body language at the table, but later we'll learn that he didn't learn anything from his niece, he's just put this together on his own. Edmund goes on to say that he detests the type of guy who doesn't have the guts to do what's necessary when the time is right, almost daring Racine to kill him later. Yeah. They laugh together, but then just as the scene ends, Racine's laugh turns into a terrified glare, and we cut to Racine running along a beach. He's jogging past the Breakers building that Edmund supposedly owns, and it's wrapped in fencing and no trespassing signs, a likely candidate for the next development-motivated arson of the city. Back at the office, Racine has several messages and finds Maddie standing behind his desk. She says no one saw her, and he's confused how she even got inside. She misses him desperately, so the second Ed left, she came straight here. She and Racine talk through all the ways they've ever reached out to each other over the phone, and when she asks why he's so concerned, he cuts right to the chase. Because we're gonna kill him. We both know that. She's not phased at all by the announcement, and they go right back to kissing. It's real, man. It's real, all right. And if we're not careful, it's gonna be the last real thing we do. Racine apparently already has a plan in mind. Late at night, Racine explores the abandoned Breakers building. He waits for a patrolling police car to pass before heading inside and down to the basement. He sees a small collapsed section of wood and the score highlights some kind of discovery. I'm not sure the significance of what he sees here. I'm guessing just a structural weak point, maybe? Yeah, he's just like, there's a lot of wood there. Fire eats wood. Back at the Walker house, Maddie laments that half of the will goes to her and half goes to Edmund's sister, Roz, which feels unfair to her. She seems to think that, as an attorney, it might be within Racine's power to make changes to the will. She will tell Edmund to bring it home and they will make the adjustments and claim that this was all done with Ed's approval. Racine is terrified at the prospect and immediately shuts the idea down. Steps like these are suspicious and will fuck everything up. She pretends to agree. Racine starts putting together a plan, and Maddie insists on driving him. She wants to take all the risks together. We cut to a workshop where Racine seems to be working on a bomb or something, while his buddy, Teddy Lewis, played by Mickey Rourke, is blasting Bob Seger tunes full blast. That was Mickey Rourke? That was yeah. Mickey Rourke, yeah. What? Isn't he cute? He, uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen him before. He's weird looking. He was in Fade to Black. Remember the movie I trivia? I remember that. He was also, uh, I think he was with uh, Jeffrey Lewis in that house in the middle of nowhere in Heaven's Gate uh, where they wallpapered the place with newspaper. Oh, man. I mean, he just doesn't, that doesn't register to me as Mickey yeah. Rourke because it just doesn't look like him. Well, that was him. When Teddy notices Racine having trouble, he steps in to help. Teddy warns him that if he uses a device like this, it will be blatant arson, but Racine doesn't give a shit, probably because he doesn't stand to gain anything from whatever he plans on burning down. He should care more about whether it's recognizable as arson, though, because if he's pinning this on Edmund, he should try to emulate Edmund's caution to make it believable. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess the plan would be to set it up that Edmund got caught up in his own plot to burn down this building. Right, but like Edmund's smarter than, than Racine is, so... Edmund would care if it just looked like a bomb went off in this basement. He would he would try to make it look more like an electrical fire. For some reason, Teddy waits till after he has fixed the bomb to tell Racine whatever he's up to is a bad plan. Anytime you try a decent crime, you got 50 ways you can fuck up. If you think it's 25 and then you're a genius and you ain't no genius. You remember who told me that? 
Without any further context, the implication is that this is advice Racine has offered to Teddy in the past. Sounds like Teddy is a former client who owes his freedom to Racine. We cut to Racine and Maddie naked in bed together, talking out the plan. At 2.30 a.m., she will send Edmund downstairs. Racine will kill him and leave the city that night. By the time they reunite, Edmund will be dead and gone. The next day, Racine drives out to a vacant lot somewhere and meets with a salesman. He rents a car and stages it somewhere, but pauses for a concerned moment to watch a clown car drive past him. I'm not sure why. <laughs> There's a clown car yeah. with a clown in the driver's seat driving past him. And I, I think maybe the implication is that he's like, am I being a fucking idiot right now? Like he's <laughs> watching this guy go by and be like, am I a clown? No, no, this is a great idea. Meanwhile, Maddie takes a bath. <laughs> we just get a random shot of her bathing. Racine hands off the convertible to the valet at a hotel and he goes inside to check in. That night, at around 1.15, Maddie is watching the clock in bed when Edmund rises suddenly to grab a drink from downstairs. Racine is still an hour and 15 minutes from ready, so she coaxes her husband back to bed for a little sexy times. They finish a little after two, and she tries to drag it out longer. Don't stop. You trying to kill me? Edmund is startled to attention by a sound downstairs, and he's certain there's someone else in the house. He dips into the closet for a second and emerges clutching a shiny new revolver. Maddie is terrified to see the unexpected gun in his hand. She waits silently upstairs while Edmund pursues the sound downstairs. I feel like the smart and unsuspicious thing to do, if she were actually concerned, would be to shout out to the house, whoever you are down there, my husband has a gun and he knows how to use it. And you could just claim you were trying to scare them away and not inform the robber. Yeah. Instead, just as Edmund flicks on a light, she shouts, He has a gun! Where? <laughs> Racine busts out of a closet with a 2x4 and manages to swipe the gun out of Edmund's hand. The two men wrestle on the floor until Racine gets a hand on the wooden beam again, and he cracks Edmund over the head with it until he's dead. It's a lot like what happened in The Postman Always Rings Twice, where the kill kept going wrong in unsuspected ways until Nicholson bashed the guy's head in. This whole movie reminded yeah. me of that movie. It's that movie, it's Double Indemnity, it's, it's a couple different yeah. movies that are all kind of mixed together, all James M. Cain stuff. I feel like... At this point, though, now that it has gone wrong, wouldn't it make sense for him to just get out of there and then they just leave everything as it is and stage it as a robbery gone wrong? I don't know. I don't know if that's better or worse. I'm just. I, like, it does seem like complicating things is always a mistake. Yeah, but I'm just like, he came downstairs with a gun. It was his gun. He and and he ended up bashed over the head and dead. And it's just like, okay. Just leave it at that. Why is that? Maybe that a doesn't problem? make sense because using a two by four to bash the guy unconscious is a very weird choice for a home invader. Yeah, I just feel like they would have been way more successful if they just left him there. Sure. And left the story. And well, I think there's also uh, an argument to be made for the fact that they they had a plan that was already set that they've already thought through, and now it's risky to start changing the plan and making up new things on the fly without thinking all the consequences through also all the, down the road the difference there too is that this person who broke into the house might be an accomplice of hers that was sent there to kill her husband whereas the plan that they had set up is to make him look guilty in addition to being dead not mm. like someone killed him but like he did it to himself later he tucks the body wrapped in plastic into the trunk of their car and he tells maddie to clean things up inside and then follow him 15 minutes behind in the rental car and to be careful in the fog. 
Racine pulls away from the house, but the fog is so thick that he can't see in front of him and collides with low-hanging branches and shit that seem to imply that he's not even on a road, per se. But he doesn't get out and look around or anything. He's just like, I'll just keep going this way until I see the building I want to be at. (laughs) That's how it works. That's how driving works. Next, he makes a dangerous left turn onto a busy street and is nearly killed by cars going in both directions. He gets to the basement of the breakers building, and under the cover of some fog, he carries Edmund's body inside and lays it next to the arson bomb. Racine starts up the device and sets a time. He lifts a beam and pins Edmund's body to the floor with it to indicate that Ed set this bomb off but got trapped down here before it exploded. Outside, Maddie pulls up to collect him. As soon as Racine is in the car, he pulls Maddie down out of sight as a police cruiser patrolling the area passes by. It seems he was hoping they would notice the fire on their patrol, but he's running later than he'd hoped. I, I thought for sure he was having her duck down because of the explosion. Oh, yeah. I think we're supposed to assume that, and then the light goes by, and you're like, oh, it wasn't the explosion. And then we're worried, is the bomb even going to go off? But then we see it go off. Maddie and Racine part ways for potentially a long time to minimize any suspicion about them. The bomb goes off, and the breaker's basement is all flame. Maddie listens from her foggy balcony as she can hear fire trucks in the distance. Sometime later, Racine is working in his office when a call comes in from a Miami lawyer named Miles Harden. That's a bad sign. Maddie said that Edmund's will was in the office there, and this is already a very disconcerting development. When Racine picks up the line, Harden hits him with a seemingly innocuous question, and Racine doesn't even know it's the last nail in his coffin. Miles Harden of Morris and Dale in Miami. Yes. As you know, we represented Edmund Walker. Yes? Yes. Even Hardin sounds surprised Racine would admit to knowing this, and it's already too late to say, why would I know that? I had dinner with the guy once. He's committed now to whatever story Maddie has told these people. Well, I I would... Yeah, it, it seems he would... He has to go along with it, because yeah. he can't contradict what she said. right. Yeah, because, yeah, if if he had said, I've never heard of you, it wouldn't have made sense. Right, but he's committing to her story, which might have been, this lawyer told me to do this, and he said he was going to kill my husband, and that's the end of the, the everything. Mm-hmm. It turns out that when Racine refused to adjust the will, Maddie just made the adjustments herself without telling Racine, and simply attached his name. Racine will have to go along with Maddie's original plan, however suspicious it may be. Well, Mrs. Walker has submitted the new will you wrote up there. Oh, I see. And frankly, Mr. Racine, I think we may have a problem. Hardin says all the relevant parties should meet to discuss the issue at their nearby sister firm, Schiller Hastings. Everything is set for 10 a.m. tomorrow. Maddie and Roz will both be there as well. Roz, who, based on the adjustments Maddie was proposing, would be cut out of the will entirely. After he hangs up, he tries and fails to reach Maddie by phone, and stares across his office at the hat she gave him, hanging on a coat tree by the door. At this point, I was assuming that it would turn out that this was Edmund's hat, and she tricked him into accepting it as a gift so he'd have more evidence in his office. At Schiller Hastings, Racine shakes hands with the expected parties to offer condolences, and finds Lowenstein here at the firm's request because he's handling the inquiry into Edmund's death. Hardin mentions the original will, as we know, split the estate evenly between Maddie and Roz, but recent changes were made, witnessed by Mr. Racine and Maddie's friend Marianne, who is unfortunately visiting Europe at the moment, but likely more than happy to cooperate with any investigation upon her return. 
Racine expresses some confusion as to the precise issue. The signatures and authenticity of the will are all fine, but there is a technical error with the amendment willing part of the estate to Heather. Before explaining the problem, Hardin asks permission to smoke, and the entire room joins him in a round of carcinogens, except for Lowenstein at the other end of the table. No, I don't need my own. I'll just breathe the air. <laughs> in writing the will, I'm afraid Mr. Racine violated what's known as the rule against perpetuities. It forbids an inheritance to be passed down indefinitely for generations. Racine appears mortified that Maddie would attribute such a mistake to his name, but he's also a couple steps ahead in solving the method behind her madness. But so this was this was a trick in order to make it seem It was a negligible change to the will. Right. It would the, seem like a negligible right, change. Right, but they wanted to make sure it didn't look like they just cut uh Roz out or Heather out completely exactly. on purpose that yeah. it was a quote unquote accident because of a technical legal issue. Yes. Hardin came to town to see if this is a common mistake for a lawyer of Racine's professionalism to make, and spoke with Judge Costanza, who not only had thoughts on Racine's professionalism, but pointed Hardin to the Gorson case, another recently invalidated will that Racine's mistakes had thrown into chaos. Racine was actually sued for his incompetence in that case. It should be obvious from this point that Maddie sought Racine out specifically because it would be believable that he would fuck something up like this again. Yes, what does this all mean? It means, I'm afraid, that Edmund's will is invalid. Edmund Walker died intestate, as though there were no will at all. Maddie pretends not to understand the implication, so Racine is invited to explain for basically just Roz's benefit, or rather lack thereof, because... In the state of Florida, when a person dies without a will and there are no children or surviving parents, and the spouse inherits everything. God. You mean it's all mine? Though that was clearly not your husband's intention. Probably should have phrased that differently. Yeah. Yeah. Hardin points out that although the money is officially hers to do with as she pleases, her husband had clear intentions to provide a benefit to Heather, hence bothering to update the will at all. In the parking lot after the meeting, they are quickly flirting again, but Racine makes it clear how furious he is. She invites him to the house tonight, and he laughs off the invitation because the timing is impossibly bad. He seems to agree anyway. When Racine gets home, he finds his front door open and Lowenstein and Detective Oscar Grace inside. They're curious how Racine ever got involved with this woman, because Oscar has doubts on the official story of her husband's death. They agree it was arson, but they don't think Edmund set the fire himself, and they doubt his business partners would be so sloppy. They agree with Edmund's sister, Roz, that Maddie seems insufficiently bereaved, but won't say anything about it until it's clear how the will shakes out. Maddie could always agree to the terms of the flawed will, but something tells them she won't. Oscar seems to think the changes to the will are suspicious too, since this Mary Ann character is supposedly in Europe, but has no current passport. As far as I'm concerned, not enough attention is being paid to the fact that this will was updated maybe a week before the guy died? Like, isn't that always suspicious when yeah. a person dies in an accident so close to the will being changed? They warn him against associating with Maddie. Take some incredibly intelligent advice and stay away from her. He's right for once. Well, I'm sorry, guys. I just can't do that. Why not? Well, for one thing, did you get a look at her? 
it wouldn't be quite so meaningful, except that today she started coming on to me. And in case you haven't heard, that lady's about to come into a great deal of money. The fact is, she invited me out there tonight, and I am going, and I am going to keep on going. As many days or nights or weekends as she'll have me. Why, why does he do this? In this case, it would actually be much more suspicious if he turned her down, since we've established him as a short-sighted, horny idiot. Yeah. I guess, but at the same time... I thought the whole plan was to be distanced from each other for a long time. Yes, but now she has brought him into the story as the person who adjusted the will. He didn't even want to be her attorney. He wanted to be a person she'd never met before. I still feel like... But now that she's dragged him into it, he knows that Lowenstein would be suspicious if he didn't go for her. Uh, That's weird. When Lowenstein reminds him that this woman probably just killed her husband... Racine has an amusing but logical response. That lady may have just killed her husband. Peter, she's not going to inherit anything by killing me. Besides, maybe she'll try to fuck me to death. After a final warning, Oscar and Lowenstein leave. We cut right to Racine in bed with Maddie as she talks through her life story. She went through struggles with drugs until a kindly attorney helped her out with a job. That's where she learned the trick with the will. Racine warns her that they already suspect she's involved, and she says that it's all in their hands now, nothing left to do about it. We cut to the police department as Roz and Heather are walked in by Lowenstein. No doubt they're here to make a statement alleging that Maddie was involved with another man prior to her husband's death. In Detective Oscar Grace's office, Racine is for some reason having to defend a recent trip to Miami for business. Apparently the trip coincided with Edmund's murder. The latest turn in what has become a homicide investigation is that Edmund died without his glasses. Glasses he would certainly have worn to drive in fog and set off a bomb for the purposes of arson. Racine claims not to understand why they've asked him here today. Look, what is this? What do you want? Am I supposed to be an undercover agent for you guys or something? That's an interesting choice of phrase. Well, suppose tonight I ask her. Say, did you kill your husband? My friends were just wondering. Another more troubling development is that Heather is here to describe a man who visited her aunt prior to Edmund's potential murder, and Racine does nothing to mask his horror at this revelation, but nobody seems to notice. Oscar offers Racine the option to leave through a back door to avoid seeing Roz and Heather, presumably to test his guilt, but Racine decides to make a show of not only leaving out the front, but stopping to chat with the little girl one-on-one to prove he isn't the man she saw. Yeah, I mean, either all in. This yeah. Is, this, might as well give it over with now. Yeah, you can confess it. by going through that door or confess by getting caught. Those are your two choices. Well, I thought I thought that they were trying to trick him to going through the door because that's where the girl was. Oh, that would be interesting too. Like, you, sh- you should leave through this door. Yeah. <laughs> Lowenstein watches this whole interaction with the girl and then meets Racine at Stella's next door for drinks. He tells him the full testimony of the girl, that she saw her Aunt Maddie about to blow some sweaty guy on the porch. And he and your friend are going at something that uh, Heather can't quite figure out, but which sounds suspiciously to me like oral genital contact, which I'm proud to say is no longer illegal in this state. Amusingly, oral genital contact was actually illegal. It was a misdemeanor at the time, according to Florida Statute 800.02, though rarely enforced. It wasn't officially struck down until 2003, when the Supreme Court officially invalidated all laws banning sodomy, and it was a part of the same law. Huh. But when it comes to describe the man, Heather only seems to recall one specific detail. Guess what he looks like? I don't know. Well, he looks about seven or eight inches long, shiny, and very, very bald. (laughs) (laughs) They both laugh at this girl's traumatic experience for a while, and then we cut to the Walker estate as Racine pounds on the wall beside Maddie, demanding answers on the missing glasses, worried they might have his fingerprints on them. 
Maddie blames their disappearance on her recently fired maid, who grew uncomfortably observant after Ed's death. Racine says that if her maid wanted to blackmail them, she'd have done it by now. Maddie claims to be disturbed by Racine's reaction to all of this, like he's somehow turning on her. All we have is each other. I'd kill myself if I thought this thing would destroy us. They embrace again, and we cut to Detective Grace speaking with the hotel staff about the recent stay of a Mr. Ned Racine. Next, he ends up at the same Ajax rental where Racine borrowed a car. We cut to a dock near the breakers at night, where Lowenstein dances around, waiting for Racine to pause for a break in his nightly jogging. Right away, Racine pulls out cigarettes for each of them to complete the exercise routine, and Lowenstein notes they're the same brand that Maddie Walker carries around. This is gonna be one of those conversations, because if it isn't, maybe I should have my lawyer present. Buddy, your lawyer is present. Since we've already established that Lowenstein is not a smoker, he tosses the lent cigarette into the water. Lowenstein doesn't mask what he knows to be the truth. He's certain that Edmund was killed, but he also knows the guy deserved it. In fact, he couldn't give less of a shit how any of this goes down, but Oscar's not like that. He will pursue things to the end of the earth for a satisfactory answer to things. Oscar's unhappy right now. I mean, he is in pain. <sighs> Why is that? Because he likes you. He likes you even better than I do. That's why he's busting his butt trying to find this Marianne Simpson. Marianne's home looks like it was quickly abandoned. Racine's alibi was that he was asleep in his hotel, but apparently someone called the hotel, convinced the staff there was some emergency, and was patched through to the room. Your phone rang and rang, but you didn't answer. It's easy. Don't. Don't say anything. On top of that, an anonymous party is trying to hand over the glasses to the police. It is abundantly clear now that Maddie has decided to frame him for everything by punching hole after hole in his story. Sometime later, Racine is drinking at the bar when he is approached by another attorney who thinks he looks familiar and is disheartened to realize that this is Racine, the guy who screwed up the Gorson case a few years ago. He apologizes for taking the case to trial, but says Judge Costanza insisted on it. Racine tells him it's water under the bridge, and the man claims he tried to make up for it by passing his name along to a woman named Maddie Walker, who needed a lawyer in his neck of the woods. The recommendation doesn't really hold water, though, because undoubtedly, this guy knows lawyers who aren't fuck-ups, so he'd have no reason to recommend Racine, and even if he did it as an apology, he definitely shouldn't have brought up that Racine is notoriously shitty with last will and testament stuff, which he apparently also told this woman. All things considered, it shouldn't be news to Racine that Maddie sought him out from the beginning, because what are the chances she would stumble upon a lawyer to blame for fucking up her husband's will, who just happened to fuck up another high-profile will a few years earlier? How did she stumble upon him? That I, I'm kind of bothered by the concept that... I think she's just been looking for an attorney for a while and was asking for a fuck-up of an attorney. No, 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 I know. But once she decided oh. on him, they met... After this concert, like, how does she know that he was going to be around at that time? And or... Maybe she's been following him around for a while. I actually th thought at the end of the movie it would have been neat to, to rewatch it and just notice her in the background of places where he was, where she tried to get his attention earlier, but he, but he missed her. So to just imply that she'd been following him for weeks before he finally noticed her. Hmm. But I think she knew what she's working with. And she knows that all he has to do is see me somewhere. So I have to find out where he goes and be at those places. And there's no way this guy's not going to hit on me based on his background. Yeah, I guess. Based on what Lowenstein told him earlier, Maddie is trying to get him caught already. This reveal doesn't really add any new information. That night, Racine pulls up outside Maddie's home, stops for a moment, and then swerves away again without going inside. Well, I think he, he realizes she's not there. Right. 
The next day, Racine walks into his office and gets a note from his secretary that Teddy Lewis, the Mickey Rourke bomb expert character, is being held in county and would like a word. It turns out he didn't call as a client, but as a friend. He wanted to warn Racine that he got a call from Maddie Walker about building another explosive device. She claimed to be asking on Racine's behalf and specifically requested something she could rig to a door with a timed delay. Does he actually use her name here? Actually, no, you're right. No, yeah, I don't, I don't she doesn't remember. say She doesn't say her name. He says, a really pretty girl yeah. reached out to me. Racine tries and fails some more to reach Maddie by phone, but she calls his office right back. She makes a lot of claims in rapid succession, but Racine sits quietly to absorb them all. She says she has all the money now and the glasses, which she bought back from her maid for an untold sum. She made it all very difficult, but I think it worked out. Do you have them? No, she wouldn't do that. She's putting them in the boathouse, in the top drawer of the dresser in the boathouse. They should be there now if she's kept up her end. She urges Racine to check on them immediately because she doesn't trust the woman, and they will reunite tonight at her house. We cut to that evening and Racine approaches the boathouse. Before he opens the door, he recalls Teddy's warning and decides to peek in from other angles to check for a bomb. His suspicions are confirmed when he finds a wire just inside the door. If she were really trying to blow Racine up, why go to his friend to order the bomb? Why did she assume Teddy wouldn't warn him? We cut to Detective Oscar Grace's office, where he and Lowenstein prepare to arrest their friend. Inside the Walker house, Racine opens a closet and retrieves the handgun that Edmund almost killed him with. Oscar stops by Racine's place, finds it empty, and heads to Maddie's. Racine drinks himself almost to sleep in Maddie's gazebo within earshot of the chimes, awaiting her arrival. Maddie pulls up out front and seems confused to find an unexploded boathouse. She walks toward it until Racine surprises her in the yard. She goes to him and caresses him to reassure him, but recoils when her hand touches the gun in his. It's all ours now. We could leave tonight if we wanted to. It's all over. Yes, it is. She backs away frightened. He tells her he didn't see the glasses in the boathouse, but doesn't specify that it's because he never went inside. Honestly, how could she possibly explain an exploded boathouse with Racine's body and her husband's glasses, though? Like, what would have been the story there? I don't think that was her plan, but Racine seems to think that was the plan. Well, I don't well think there's it, no glasses in Yeah, there. I don't think there were glasses were in there at well, all. Well, it doesn't matter either way, but it seems like he thinks her plan was, I'll go into the house and she'll blow me up. How is she going to explain to the police that there was a bomb in her boathouse that blew this guy up? Oscar arrives at the edge of the property just as Maddie begins pleading with Racine. She wants to know how she can prove her love, and he suggests that she head down to check on those glasses. You said they weren't there. I said I didn't see them. Somehow, Oscar notices them talking in the yard without Racine seeing or hearing the police car pull up. When Maddie volunteers to look for the glasses, I think we're supposed to suspect that perhaps Maddie is being framed in some way by Marianne, as she truly loves Racine and doesn't know about the bomb. She stops one last time to profess her love, and then Racine and Oscar watch her walk to the house. As she gets closer, Racine finally believes in her love and drops the gun to stop her before she reaches the house. He's halfway there when it explodes. And we cut to Racine in a jail cell, presumably having been convicted for the deaths of Edmund and Maddie Walker. Unclear what his motive would be in Maddie's death, since all of the money would probably go to Roz anyway, or the state. It's not like he's already in her will. Right. 
The camera slides overhead and stops above Racine and then spin zooms into his face as a realization strikes him. She's alive. Racine spells out the entire plot to Oscar as he has solved it. The body discovered in the exploded boathouse was not Maddie's, but that of the still missing Marianne. Oscar says they identified Maddie by dental records. Racine suggests that the woman they knew as Maddie Walker was just using the name, but the body they found is the real Maddie that fake Maddie had been posing as in an effort to reset her life. Racine suggests that the girl he knew as Marianne was the real Maddie, and she showed up when she learned of the scheme, so fake Maddie had been paying her to keep quiet. That's what the paperwork was that we saw them exchanging that night. The bomb at the boathouse was meant to kill real Maddie and Racine at once, so that fake Maddie has nobody to fight for the money. A way to solve all her problems and get clear with no one looking for her. And Oscar, she was right too, because I would have never stopped looking for her. Maddie killed this other girl and put her body in the boathouse. It was so perfect and so clean. You find two bodies, me and this girl. Two killers dead. Case closed. Racine is fascinated with the brilliance of the plan and points out to Oscar that he still hasn't found the money, which should be all the proof he needs. Racine's theory is a bit paranoid for Oscar's taste. Weeks later, a fully bearded Racine is in his cell when a package arrives. He ordered a yearbook from Wheaton High School in Wheaton, Illinois. A note accompanying the yearbook suggests it is only being loaned to Racine because he claimed to be the cousin of a deceased student from the school. He pages through the book looking for Maddie and finds Maddie Tyler, nicknamed Smoocher, whose only listed ambition is to graduate, but it's not Kathleen Turner's face. Elsewhere in the same class, he finds a photo of Mary Ann Simpson, nicknamed The Vamp, whose ambition is to be rich and live in an exotic land. The camera tracks up to show the face of Kathleen Turner, Mary Ann Simpson, who has spent the film posing as her classmate Maddie Tyler. Of all the lies, why would you give the actual school that you and your friend went to? Yeah, right? there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that she tells him that she shouldn't have. I, I guess in case he tries to look her up. We dissolve from Marianne's yearbook photo to fake Maddie relaxing on a beach in a tropical paradise, identifiable from geographic features as Sugar Beach in St. Lucia. The man relaxing beside her comments on the heat, the only part of her former life she hasn't escaped. She puts on some sunglasses and the camera tilts up to the sky as credits roll over the clouds. I feel like I don't want this ending. I would rather She have, get caught somehow or No, I'd rather have his delusional like story be the end and be like I is don't, that what happened? Is that what happened? Did mm. she really do that? Is she did she switch places and 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 or did she die? Like I I'd, I'd much rather kind of leave it ambiguous because sure. all the other characters don't know the answer really. And Yeah, and with uh Postman earlier this year at the end of the story he's like grieving over their deaths but we don't know his fate we don't know if he ends up going to jail for yeah. it or what so so you would end it before the yearbook before the yearbook before the island like just he's you know obviously towards the end of the film he's putting everything together mm -hmm. and then he goes to jail and you don't know if he's just kind of going crazy and like putting more what if they confirm the other way that he is crazy and when the camera tilts up on the yearbook photo it's a velociraptor in a wig it's like, holy shit, he's just crazy. 
What? This is not in the yearbook. There's no way that's the picture in the yearbook. He's insane. I just think that it, I like the idea of leaving it ambiguous. Yes. No, I agree. I think that would be smarter and definitely cheaper. <laughs> you save a flight for Kathleen Turner to St. Lucia for this one shot. Uh, but yeah, that, that makes sense to me. But I, I think that it was a deliberate choice to have her win and to, to confirm that she won and that she ended up in exotic lands. I was hoping that the glasses she was going to put on were going to be the Just guy's covered glasses. in fingerprints. Well, but like that, but then, recognizably William Hurt's fingerprints all over the glasses. Well, no, yeah, well, like recognizably Richard Crenna's glasses. That yeah, she's like converted into sunglasses. Yeah, like she had the lenses removed and made into sunglasses. It was like a trophy. Just cut to a whole montage of that process. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's too much. Um, yeah, no, I I like this movie though. I still think of the two, I prefer Postman Always Rings Twice from this year in terms of noir murder mystery. I definitely prefer this to to Postman. Yeah, I think I actually prefer this one as well. I it it, it had more mystery to it first of all, and yeah, the other one's no, more of a suspense yeah, thing. Then yeah, for sure. But like this, I think that I just generally was more engaged in this one. Sure. Oh, I also think that. It's it's kind of weird how good a fit William Hurt and Kathleen Turner are because the characters that they play in this movie are very similar in terms of just their general darkness as people, but they, they also kind of got typecast as these two characters for their entire careers. So both of them feel very at home in mm-hmm. these roles, but they're also how I think of these two actors. They're, they're a good fit here. Do we know how we're doing Letterboxd? This is a thumbs up for me, by the way. Yeah, I, oh, give, yeah. It, I give it a thumbs up. Yeah, total thumbs up. Are you pulling up your list, Jess? No, definitely not doing that. Just sending a text to the real Maddie Walker. Doty Walker. Remember that from the scary stories to tell in the dark? No. The entire Doty Walker. It's a talking dog. Weird shit. <laughs> what about you, Richard? Where do you have it on Letterboxd? Um, I have it pretty high. I have it at 21. Okay. Uh, which puts it below blowout, but above eye of the needle. All right. Um, I have it at 23rd, which is also above Eye of the Needle, and just below Postman Always Rings Twice. Mm. I originally had it very close to Postman Rings Twice, but then I bumped it up a few notches because I liked it better. So I have it at 28, uh, which is below Endless Love and above The Fan. Okay. And that's out of 114 now. Our writer-director here was Lawrence Kasdan. He just wrote Empire Strikes Back last season, and he came back strong this season with Raiders, Body Heat, and Continental Divide. This is his first directing credit. Later, he writes Return of the Jedi, The Big Chill, Silverado, The Bodyguard, Dreamcatcher, Force Awakens, and most recently, Solo. Uh, the producer here was George Lucas. Uh, he's that Star Wars guy. with the He has a beard and, uh, and glasses. Never heard of him. Music was from John Barry, best known in my mind for the Bond theme, that it turns out he might have just arranged from a composition by Monty Norman, who we just lost a couple weeks back. So far, we've heard Barry's work on Raise the Titanic, Somewhere in Time, Touched by Love, Inside Moves, and The Legend of the Lone Ranger. So very busy guy at this time. Cinematographer Richard H. Klein previously lit Camelot, The Andromeda Strain, The Mechanic, Soylent Green, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, and Star Trek TMP. We've seen his work as a DP on Touched by Love and the Competition, and he's back for Death Wish 2, Breathless, All of Me, The Man with One Red Shoe, Howard the Duck, and My Stepmother is an Alien. 
Editor Carol Littleton, Kasdan insisted on a woman editor because he valued a female perspective on the tasteful eroticism. She went on to work with Kasdan several more times and has credits on E.T., The Big Chill and Silverado for Kasdan, Benny and June, Dreamcatcher for Kasdan, and The Manchurian Candidate remake. William Hurt played Ned Racine. This part was offered first to Superman himself, Christopher Reeve. He didn't think audiences would buy him as a sleazy lawyer. We've seen Hurt so far in Altered States and Eyewitness, and I think we've lost him since our Eyewitness review. He just recently yeah, passed March, away. Yeah, March, I think. Uh, he's back later for The Big Chill and The Accidental Tourist and I Love You to Death for director Kasdan. Later, he appears in Broadcast News, Lost in Space. He was also General Thunderbolt Ross for the MCU. Worth mentioning that Hurt's partner at the time, Donna Kaz, wound up in the ER after being repeatedly subjected to physical abuse from William Hurt during the making of this film. Kathleen Turner played Maddie Walker. Mimi Rogers and Angel Tompkins both auditioned for this part, but Maddie was officially offered to Happy Hooker and Private Lessons actress Sylvia Christel, who turned it down. Christel is gorgeous, but I do not see her in this role yeah. at all. Mimi Rogers, that's an interesting choice. Yeah. Turner, Hurt, and Kasdan reteamed seven years later for The Accidental Tourist. This is Kathleen Turner's first film acting credit, and she's back in 83 for The Man with Two Brains, and then Romancing the Stone, Pritzi's Honor, Jewel of the Nile, and Peggy Sue Got Married. She's the voice of Jessica Rabbit. She's the mom in John Waters' Serial Mom, and she had a great run on Californication. She has appeared on Family Guy as herself impersonating Peter Griffin. Good morning, guys. Peter, what's wrong with your voice? I got punched in the throat at the clam last night. Now I sound exactly like Kathleen Turner. I'm just going to get my stromboli. Hey, get away from my stromboli, Kathleen Turner. Nah. Prior to this film, Turner's only acting credit was on soap opera The Doctors as Nola Dancy Aldrich. She was replaced in that role by actress Kim Zimmer, who plays Mary Ann Simpson in this film. <laughs> so they both played Nola Dancy Aldrich on The Doctors and Mary Ann Simpson in this film. <laughs> Richard Crenna played Edmund Walker in 1973. Crenna appeared in a remake of Double Indemnity, a James M. Cain story which obviously informed the plot of this film extensively, though in that film, Crenna played the love interest lured into murdering his lover's husband. He's probably best known as Colonel Troutman from the Rambo series, but he basically parodied the character as Colonel Denton Walters in Hot Shots Part 2. He also worked with our friend Cyrus Narasta as Reagan in The Day Reagan Was Shot, and we saw him last as Trevor Marshall in Death Ship. I think he was like a chronically depressed ship captain who was retiring or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I feel like he's pretty underused in this movie. Yeah, that's probably true. He could have done more. But he he does really sell the moment in, in the restaurant when he's yeah. confronting uh, Hurt. Ted Danson played Peter Lowenstein. This part was considered for Jeff Goldblum, which I would have also loved. But uh, I love Goldblum and Danson pretty equally. Those are, those are both favorite actors of mine. I, I feel like Jeff Goldblum would have danced just as much as yeah probably <laughs> or he would have gold bloomed a little <laughs> gold bloom came back to work with kasdan for the big chill and silverado as the lead actor of cheers danson has worked with two star wars actors john ratzenberger from empire and woody harrelson from solo both of which were written by this film's writer director lawrence kasdan danson has mostly tv work he does show up in the three men and a baby films with gutenberg who we just had in our boys from brazil review one of danson's biggest parts has been sam malone on cheers he was also dr john becker on becker he was also wonderful in hbo's bored to death and he's led multiple csi series but most recently he just wrapped up the good place on nbc and he has a recurring role on seth MacFarlane's the orville which currently resides at hulu and i hope it gets a fourth season because the third season's been pretty good yeah 
Uh, I love The Good Place. Can't say enough good things. I just about finished it, it actually. Oh, good. I, I just powered through it uh, in like a week and a half. And uh, Jesus, depressing finale. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's it's fun. It's got some fun jokes in there. J.A. Preston played Detective Oscar Grace. He was Con McCleary in Remo Williams. He's also the judge in A Few Good Men for the famous You Can't Handle the Truth speech. He's a magistrate in Captain Ron and a senator in Contact. Mickey Rourke was Teddy Lewis. We've had him in Fade to Black and Heaven's Gate so far. He's also in Diner, Rumblefish, Barfly, Buffalo 66, Spun, Sin City, The Wrestler, and Iron Man 2. Kim Zimmer played Mary Ann Simpson. She was Lieutenant Kate Murphy in several MacGyver episodes, including two Dr. Zito episodes and one of the Western episodes. Jane Halloran played Stella. She was Nurse Randall in My Girl. We saw her last season as Gloria Preston in Hero at Large. I think that's the reporter character who keeps saying that John Ritter is a fake. Uh, she was also Ellen in Modern Romance earlier this season. That's the one where Albert Brooks forgot who it was when he asked her out. Right. And then he picked her up and drove her around her building and dropped her off immediately because he said he wasn't ready to date. Michael Ryan played Miles Harden. He was Sergeant Sullivan in Remo Williams and a middle-aged man somewhere in Tootsie. I can't believe you would just credit middle-aged man yeah. in that movie full of middle-aged men. Larry Marco played Judge Robert Costanza. He was Phantom's trainer in Don't Mess with Zohan. Phantom is the John Turturro character. Deborah Lucchesi played Beverly. She has mostly casting-related credits in films like Going Ape, The Big Chill, Falcon and the Snowman, and The Fly 2. Lynn Hollowell played Angela. She was Honeybun last season in Any Which Way You Can. Tom Sharp played Michael Glenn. He was Braden Aglet in Repossessed multiple characters across nine episodes of dinosaurs and he also played jeff taylor the oldest brother of tim the Toolman taylor on home improvement robert trainer played prison trustee this is his first credit and he's back as a desk clerk in psycho 2 a ticket agent in cloak and dagger and a beverly hills cop in into the night meg kasdan kasdan played a nurse she is the wife of director Lawrence Kasdan. She also shows up as a barmaid in Lawrence Kasdan's Silverado and a flight attendant in Lawrence Kasdan's The Big Chill. Bruce A. Lee played Man on Beach. Not that Bruce Lee, just, just yeah. this Bruce Lee. He's only in this movie, and his name's Bruce A. Lee. I think that's everything for Body Heat. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We got one! That's right, it's a new patron Jason Karinko is a $5 patron of the show. Jason now has access to 31 full-size 70s reviews and 36 minisodes from 1980 and a hand in choosing next month's film. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Choo Choo and the Philly Flash, which IMDb describes like so. Flash used to be a talented baseball player, but he took to drinking and now he sells stolen watches on the streets. One day he meets Choo Choo, who, before falling into alcoholism like him, was a successful entertainer. Now, she still dances, but in the streets, for no more than a cent or two. Luck seems to smile at them. <laughs> That's not how I would have put that. The day they find stolen government documents forgotten someplace. They decide to return them to their legal owners, but instead of the expected reward money, all they get is a load of trouble. Oy. Doesn't that sound great? No. Doesn't sound at all like our last Alan Arkin film, <laughs> Improper Channels. <laughs> where they intercept a bunch of government information that they shouldn't have 
and they try to return it and it only causes trouble. Anyway, we leave you now with a trailer for Choo Choo and the Philly Flash. Alan is a Philly Flash. If it wasn't for my feet, I would be in the Hall of Fame by now. An ex-baseball pitcher who's found another use for his arm. One by watch, get away from me. I don't know you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. All right. Gerald Burnett is Choo Choo, a ding-a-ling dance teacher who's completely out of step. One moment, you're done! who are useless. We're going to beat them to death with the arms we ripped from your shoulders. Wow! And information that is priceless. Two million dollars worth of plans and we're dealing with hot dog men. We play our cards right, we could get 50 bucks for that. Maybe 75. They're up against the mobsters. The morons. Give me some rock. The military. Sure, why not? We'll sell them to the army. 300 bucks are yours. Hey Ashley. Hey man, what's going on? I have created something truly extraordinary. Oh shit, for real, what's that? It's called a podcast. Um, Vern, that has already been invented. Yeah, but our shows, Cinema Recall, we're gonna talk about movies. Oh, okay. You know, like box office blockbusters? Yeah. Foreign independent films? Gotcha. Musicals and animation? Yeah, lots of people do that. S-rated adult flicks? Ew, Vern, no. What makes Cinema Recall different from the rest? Well, we will be offering great content with a wide variety of guests on both our podcast platforms and YouTube as well. Variety. Like, it covers many different genres of film? Exactly. We want to be the show for fans of cult features like Howard the Duck to be friends with fans of big blockbusters like Spider-Man No Way Home. I still feel like so many other shows do that format. Yeah, but I have two very attractive and good-looking hosts. Fern, it won't matter if they're listening. Maybe they'll enjoy the banter we have with each other and special guests. We can even make a show that includes all lovers of cinema. From art house gems? And raunchy comedies. I like it. A show that celebrates all forms of entertainment. Cinema Recall is available everywhere you find great podcasts. The hell was that? It's our voice promo guy. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram under Cinema Recall Podcast and on Twitter at Cinema underscore Recall. Vern, can we afford to have a voiceover guy? We can't afford not to. He used to be a voice guy for movie trailers, but now he just follows me around and gives me movie trailer narration. That's really sad. What? Now we're giving him purpose in life. He now has a reason to go on. Check out past episodes at cinemarecall.net. Promise it's fun! (laughs) 